Welcome to Happy Times and Places, in which I, Toby Haydoke, try to guess what my special guest's favourite things about their chosen Doctor Who story are. Toby, I have chosen the Rebos operation. So that was Dan Rebellato, a playwright for stage and radio. Uh, very smart, very witty, very talented guy who has chosen the Rebos operation. We're on to episode four. So I hope you are poised with your play already or your imaginations geared to uh, summon your memories of oh, sorry my set's wobbled <laughs> uh, the Rebos Operation Part 4 which we're going to press play of in 3 2 1 oh, so it's a great title sequence isn't it this so I don't know about you, but this is just, just too early for my, uh, to have embedded itself in my memory banks from first time round. I do remember the first time I, I saw it, though. It was, uh, it was on a not very good quality VHS, uh, bootleg. And, uh, I wasn't hugely impressed, if I'm honest. Uh, oh, you don't, ah, now here's an interesting thing. Because um, I was young. Uh, it's one of those rare things where there's a bit of extra footage inserted uh, in a sort of perils of Pauline kind of way to uh, explain how the Doctor gets out of the cliffhanger. Uh, oddly, because it's not particularly a, a cliffhangery. You know, it's not a, it's not a an immediate peril. You know, somebody's about to shoot him. It's more of a kind of, oh, he's, he's, you know, there's a threat. There's a literally mouthed threat of death, but not a, a, a literal, literal, he's about to die any second now threat of death. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, they still inserted uh, a little bit of a cheat there, um, which is less troublesome, actually, because um, it, it's not a, Oh, he's fallen off that cliff, and uh, yet when we see it next week, he's fallen off a cliff, and somebody's had time to build a shelf underneath it. So uh, I don't object to it in in the way that I I would in 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 the sort of cheating ones. Remember, we used to watch a thing called Daredevils of the Red Circle, which was on at weekday tea times. It was a, a repeated black and white thing, like King of the Rocket Men, and they'd have a thing where you know somebody would go, "I'm going to kill you now!" Bang, and then next week it'd be, "I'm going to kill you now." And then somebody would go, look, they go, what? Then everybody would have time to leave the house, drive to Glasgow, um, start a small business, uh, get married. And then they go, bang! Oh, where have they gone? Uh, so it wasn't as bad as that. These are pretty decent caves. Ken, yeah, Ken Ledsham has done a very good job with the sets, I have to say. And in fact... That brings me to uh, Tim Dickinson, who is one of my patrons. I hate 
how that sounds. I'm on Patreon. Some people are kind enough to uh, contribute. But when I say, I, I, he is one of my patrons, I sound, I'm where I sound like the Queen. Um, one just has to get used to the new way of doing things. That's the blocking of that is quite fun. <laughs> Gus Vincent's having fun with uh, R- Romana's uh, furry surround. Um, uh, Tim Dickinson says, does this look better or should I say a step up than many of the studio only stories from the previous few years? Um, I, th- I, th- I mean, I think it, I think it does. I think it looks, it looks a lot better than a lot of what surrounds it. I think at this time, the, the historicals or those in a historical period tended to look better than the sort of pure pure sci-fi and although this is you know there are elements of this that are to all intents and purposes historical which is a very clever use of of resources set it on a sort of medieval type planet uh you know add a laser sword here and there androids of tara um and you have the best of both worlds you have the bbc's brilliant costume and set design infrastructure that is based on you know training and uh stored resources um things from other productions uh and uh and i think you're automatically at an advantage and i think this this story looks absolutely magnificent uh uh, look at those furs and things like that that you probably wouldn't have been able to you know acquire for a uh you know for a one-off but if they're kicking around because they've been used in i think i think war and peace uh it should have been the anthony hopkins one that john davis directed in 72 73 i'm i'm guessing they're not from that they're from something similar um so um so yes i think i think tim they do it does look it does look better from uh, much that's around it. And he also asks, is this the greatest Robert Holmes script? Well, Dan alluded to how, how, how brilliant it was and the world building, which I think is very good. I think what it misses, which I don't miss, and I'm doing that terrible thing now, is worrying on behalf of other people. Um, but I, 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 I do know people who you know don't get particularly carried away by the joy of the rebus operation because it is missing a couple of sort of traditional elements of 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 doctor who of um you know it's not terribly scary really uh, and it doesn't really have much of a monster um and and the sci-fi is cursory but you see you get but you get you get stuff like this timothy bateson is great in this scene he's been great since i mean he's great all the way through But and he's, you know, he's still doing, you know, nineteen seventies comedy old man acting, in, in, in a way. Um, but there's such a truth and a decency to it, and you know, he's a he's a man of a broken mind as well, and that's clear. Is worth a knife. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, commitment. Have you noticed uh, Timothy Bateson actually removed his false teeth, um, in order to. Uh, in order to convince even more, as as Binro 
Um, do people have false teeth anymore? I don't know. I know there's an actor called David Ross who did a lot of Bleasdale work, who I've seen on stage. Very Oh, the original Crichton. Uh, I read an interview with him where he said that when he was quite young, somebody told him to have all his teeth removed, so he had them all removed and their false teeth, which I find quite very strange. Um, God, that's going to hurt, isn't it? Um, but anyway, um, I do. I, I know a couple of people who've got the odd, the odd solo missing tooth. Um, yes, these. These uh, these two are doing sort of comedy, bad guy banter. Um, up and what a bit to the left. Yes, it's not very comfortable that, but that's that's the point to show that these men will will stop at nothing. Uh, and it, oh, and he's so good, and he's got some great stuff to come uh, in this. Um, and I mean Robert. I mean Robert Keegan was the sort of mother that my my the mother, the sort of actor that my mother knew. I always judge an actor by whether my mum who knows who they are or not, because I'm not from a, a, a theatrical family at all. So if if you'd broken through to the consciousness of my of my mum, you'd done pretty well. Perhaps I, that's what I aspire to be, the sort of mum my actor knows who she who who he is. Haha. <laughs> It's interesting. I was, I was looking at Colin Baker's costume the other day. Um, you know, um, pebble dash to loosen a gens on a clown, um, and it's a show. And I, lo- I really like Colin Baker, and I, and I, I, well, I'll talk about him in the Colin Baker ones. But uh, uh, I think he was ill-served by his costume and I was trying to work out why because Tom Baker doesn't wear things that normal people wear either but there's something about that costume that is sort of timeless I I don't look at Tom Baker in this and think this is from the 1970s now I wonder if that's because it was already there when I came into Doctor Who so it just seemed normal because I, I guess John Pertwee's costumes are are quite dated, the hair and the velvet jackets. But to me, they they seem sort of timeless, and I I would have been happy with Pertwee wearing that now. Whereas I, I, I'm not sure, you know, Colin Baker's stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I, it just seems to me that the first four Doctors, in particularly, in particular, had a costuming policy where even though their their uh, wardrobe is somewhat avant avant garde. It seems to me real and plausible. Um, there's a natural sort of flair and eccentricity to it. Um, whereas, and I, I, you know, I will mention this in in the McCoy stuff, and it's been mentioned before about you know, you can only have so many question marks before your mysteriousness is seriously undermined. Look how mysterious I am, you know. It's it's like Colin from the Far Show, isn't it? The party going, how wacky I am. Um, oh, I do like these two, and you know the Robert Holmes double acts. Um, are uh, you know classic Holmesian double act is only a sentence you'll hear <laughs> issued by Doctor Who fans, but you know he's hit upon a winning formula, and and I think what's important is you believe that these people 
know each other from before. Who wants everything? I'll settle for 90%. <laughs> oh, and she's got feathers, the seeker, as well. And that was, that was always a... So how do we feel about the fact that the seeker absolutely correctly predicts what's going to happen? That all but one of us is doomed to die. Now, we don't get that in Doctor Who very often, where somebody who's sort of... And, and occasionally, I think, it you know, it could be seen as self-fulfilling prophecy rather than, you know, or a bit of baloney, like the Beast of Fang Rock or, 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 or whatever, or, uh, you know, Angus McReynolds' uh, folk... That sort of folk tale is sort of allowed because in those times and in those parts, folk tales were part and parcel of what's going on. But this is you know some shaman type uh some bone shaker who nonetheless turns out to be correct how do we feel about that because that's not that's not very of the doctor who universe and in fact especially from robert holmes who would normally seek to undermine such stuff you know the time lord gods that's all sort of a bit of propaganda in a bit of show so but it works with the costume and the makeup are great. Um, the performance is very good. Um, all the, I think all the performances in this are great. I don't think there's a duff performance in it. Um, and I've got to be aware of that when I choose my... Oh, it's Binro. And th I think the only bit I remember from the book is is coming up which is binro's death which um ian martyr makes fairly you know characteristically on martyr brand pretty grotesque i think he gets the, the his side blown out or whatever um which, which is pretty grim and pretty unpleasant um i actually we'll, we'll talk about it when it comes i <laughs> that's a nice witty touch the doctor's scarf hanging out of the bottom of the costume and i like i like the fact that actually the captain um and the people of rebos have, you know have their own little contribution um and and, and actually you know the captain who has been rather sort of outwitted by people and patronised by the great rich warlord and all of that. Um, oh, poor old Binro does 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 actually cause their downfall, but I want to get to this. Um, oh, oh I'm, it's, 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 it's very sad. I, do, I don't, I don't like that particularly. I don't think it's, it's i don't think it's you know charming fellow what little i saw of him i suppose is a reasonable and i i i think it i i think it sort of i i, I it, it's it 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 goes against what the story's been doing and i know these are funny characters and i know there's other stuff going on as of and i suppose the writer could be going well death isn't always you know there's not always time to shed a tear or for a moment or whatever but i it's a shame. I thought Binro deserved better than a than a than a semi joke by by 
by Garen. I like Unstoff's reaction, and it, and it's and the staging of it's compromised as well because of the space and the nature of it. But um, I know it's it's a minor thing, and it doesn't spoil anything for me. I I think it's just a moment that that I think could have been worked better. I I love that um, Garen, for all his bluster, actually un underneath it all, Ian Cuthbertson suggests actually you know re realism and uh humanity and although he's a lovable rogue he, he's got more depth than that and he's a clever enough actor and he's given enough moments to show that um yes i like the fact that people of rebos ribos rebos uh, have have their little moment of revenge upon, upon you know essentially lots of people from elsewhere who've come and patronised them, tried to nick their stuff. Uh, I say it's a bit me, it's a bit harsh on the seeker, I would say, who the captain knows is down there. He's essentially gone. Well, she could be collateral damage, really. Um, rock. I I've got a feeling. Didn't Graham Donald? Oh, uh, he says something like, "My guts, doesn't he? My guts, my guts are flattened." <laughs> That's really grim. I and I, I I like the fact that you like Sherlock and and the Graf's relationship, and he dies with his eyes open. Uh, uh. There's a, there's a, now I'm sure this is some sort of military thing going on here, some sort of thing from the people of the Graf's world and Legion or whatever, because I think he, he kisses him, doesn't he? I think he gives him a big old kiss. Um, but I, you know, it's, that's, I don't think that's to suggest anything. I think it's a ritualistic thing. But I also, there is a, I think there's a little bit of, does he kiss him? Yeah, go on, kiss him. Yeah, I love it. I love that. Yeah, he kisses his eyes, so it's definitely ritualistic. But I, I not, I, I think if you wanted to write slash fiction about the Graf Vindicay and Sholak, it wouldn't be unreasonable. I think so. So go for it. <laughs> go for it, Stephanie. Um, what's that a reference to? No. Um, Graham Macdonald, I interrupted myself. I think it said in his memo about the last episode. You know, please make sure this doesn't sort of. Um, fall into um, you know like what crappy polystyrene rocks territory actually I thought the rock fall stuff was done pretty well George Benton the foster the director doesn't have a great reputation I think that's because um, certainly a few actors I've spoken to I know Brian Croucher didn't get on with him um, and I think he was a drinker um, but so, so, but I know I know some actors of old like him. And as I say, he went back, back quite a few years within the BBC, and I think I think June Hudson speaks highly of him. But June Hudson speaks highly of June H Hudson is an example to us all, uh, is because she's so lovely, um, and I and I I don't think me peop enough people sort of talk about uh, Spenton Foster really because I think he does a. I think he does a decent job. We have a bit of a blind spot with the directors of this period of the show. M Michael Hayes was interviewed quite late by Doc Two magazine. Does make it onto the DVDs. Spenton Foster seemed to sort of vanish. Um, 
as I say, I'm not sure on the internet there's a there's a clear date of death, um, unlike for the seeker who gets shot in the face. But I think around I think around 1992, I think he went to Australia. Norman Stewart, nobody really talks about. Daryl Blake only directed the one story. Whereas I think we're sort of more familiar with the directors who came before and after. I don't know why. It might just be me. Um, so if your story is different, of course. Uh, he and uh, He's lost his mind. He's so sad about his lover, Sholak. I've decided to make this canon now. <laughs> he does it really well. And it is quite stagey. So I suppose anybody that is... You know, is is now used to a diet of very whispery acting. Um, uh, may find this a little bit jarring, but uh, you can. There's, there's truth in vividness, um, and and the graph needs to be big. I think Paul Seed's great, um, and a good director too. Uh, he directed a thing called Murder Rooms about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, uh, and he's a really good contributor to the to the DVD. Yeah, see, there's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of there's a lot. They're a very tactile military force where the graph comes from. <laughs> and, oh, and and I love this moment. Oh, is this going to be my moment? Because it's one of those rare things. There's a bit a bit like it in Ghostlight with with Ace, but where you can hear what is in in the graph's mind uh and he really commits to that but i but i and it's quite a hard thing to pull off and i think that could have looked awful but the addition of the sound of what is going on in his mind um it's, uh, and there's a there's a slight cop there's something slightly comical about an off uh an off-camera explosion where you don't see bits of flesh flying about because you can't because it's saturday tea time or whatever but i think that's really effectively done i love that and it's not played for laughs. It's it's done absolutely properly. Uh, 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 and the and the and the banter between these 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 characters is great. And you could tell you could tell the Doctor sort of likes Garen, and that Tom Baker likes Ian Cuthbertson. Uh, you imagine they had fun in the bar afterwards. Uh, what else did Tim say? Uh, is Rebus the pinnacle of the Graham's Williams era? For my money, it looks good. The wittiest part of the bluster and interactions between the characters, and it's so blooming cosy to watch on a winter's evening. Uh, in this household, we love the seeker. In fact, whenever we lose something in the house, we shout, Seek and find! Ah! This makes the Rebus operation one of the few stories that unites the entire family. I want to go to the Dickinson's house. Uh, and is it the greatest Robert Holmes script? Uh, I think I just, it, I, 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 I think it's a lovely script, and I think it's a pretty faultless script. But I think in terms of Doctor, as I say, it's perhaps missing some of the elements to make it, you know, typ typical Doctor Who. And of course, when something isn't typical Doctor Who, I sort of cherish it because there's less like it. Um, is it the, is it the pinnacle of the? The Graham Williams era. Well, that's an interesting question. I uh, sit well. There is City of Death, of course. Horror Fang Rock. Although you know that's a bit of a cheat because he did sort of inherit it a bit. Um, I don't know. We all have our favourites, but uh, 
and the, and and great that the 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 sort of script about the con ends with a con and a double con. <laughs> that is such a, a, a <laughs> lovely and appropriate coda. Uh, and I love these two, and I'm glad that uh, I like that. Isn't it funny how we we like a lovable thief? Whereas thieves are awful people; they steal stuff off you. Um, but there's why why we are attracted to rogues. I think because we, you know, because they don't quite play by the rules. But in reality, uh, you know, I don't like people who steal things from people. I, I, I don't think they're very nice. Uh, uh, so and you know they're still thinking you know reminding us that this is about the key to time and of course and it's it's very uh smart that the you know that the jethric the thing that it's it's uh, you know a lot of the drama is centered around is uh the thing a uh, part of the thing that you know is also part of a bit of bluff and double bluff and the the much sought after thing that does whatever it is it does basically yeah basically it's the it's the it crowd isn't it we've got to switch the universe off and back on again which is um i mean remarkably prescient when you think about how modern technology works <laughs> basically the universe is windows uh, or or uh, 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 yeah, uh, uh, any form of modern technology um, presumably uh, it can only be controlled by uh, uh, it doesn't have any buttons on it you need a special remote control that currently in Haydoke Towers is still lost uh, and I love the fact that everybody gets a solo credit that you can read I mean that's going to be a constant thing for me but I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, having a little bit of time to acknowledge the people that have made the thing that you like and I think uh, it encourages people to think about the creativity that they have witnessed and it gives credit to the people who have done the thing that you like. Uh, and I don't think the world of entertainment is any better because we don't do such things uh, uh, quite so well anymore. But there we go. Uh, I'm aware that I'm probably uh, trying to swim against a tide that has long since gone out and drowned me. Um, anyway... I have to choose a thing from episode four and a bonus thing. I'm aware I didn't choose the sort of s snowy, uh, uh, you know, the whole s design and snowiness of uh, of uh, of Reboss. I don't think I did, did I? Sorry, I did this first the other night. I chose the I chose that bit that I can see on the 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 DVD menu, which is the door opening. So I chose that. In the first episode, I chose the Binro scene, and I chose the Scringe Stone. So no, so um, and, but I love the Seeker. I love uh, Paul Seed as the Graph. I, I mean, I think Robert Keegan as Sherlock is very good as well, and uh, I love the kissing. Um, uh, I mean, there are, I love the the Seeker. Um, I love the fact that. Prentice Hancock has a has a good time and a and a, and a, and a role that, that that suits him that he carries off. Um, so, but they're all actory things, aren't they? Um, so there's a pretty much put it like this: I am spoilt for choice. Dudley Simpson's music is great. Uh, I've got a nasty feeling that Dudley Simpson, because I didn't choose him for Evil of the Daleks, and I really should have done because it's one of his best scores. And I was occasionally grabbing 
clutching for straws doing that. Um, I've got a really nasty feeling I get to the end of this look back and go, I never chose Dudley Simpson because I sort of took him for granted. <laughs> and that's it's that's sort of how I feel sometimes about my career. It's the, I think everyone assumes I'm 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 around, <laughs> don't so they don't need to employ me. <laughs> um, it's I'd rather think that about myself than just people thinking I'm rubbish and not worth employing. Um, uh, the little psychological games we play. Uh, I, and uh, Tim saying this is perfect viewing for a wintry evening. I have been watching this on two wintry evenings and thoroughly enjoying it. If you're not familiar with the Reboss operation, I hope this has inspired you to uh, to to give it another go because I think it's fabulous. Thanks to Dan for inspiring me. But I've got a I've got to stop talking and choose my two favourite things before listening to Dan's. So. I'm going to choose the environs of, of Reboss, maybe as my bonus thing before I choose my spe specific thing for episode four. Uh, I think my thing across the whole story is that the, the snowy wastes, the fact that that prompts then has, you know, costuming policy and, and set policy and the, the whole design uh, and, and feel of Reboss and the, and the realisation of it, I think is great and I think it suits studio bound drama doctor is full of people being very ambitious uh, 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 uh and uh, you know writing scenes that are impossible to pull off in a studio and you admire that ambition but it's not always rewarding for the viewer this is a writer going or, or well and a director and des design department all going well we could do it like this and it'll act with the resources that we have and it will tell the story it will suit the story and it will also suit the resources that we have at our disposal. And I think it's a great synthesis. And I think it's a, a, an underrated production. Everyone talks about the sparkling script and the characters. It's a fine production. So, yeah, the the design, the conception, the realisation of Rebos itself uh, is, is, is my bonus thing. And my thing for part four, I do like the Seeker. And there's, there's no one quite like her. Uh, and I, but I do love that moment where the graph, you know, marches off to win the war and ends up getting blown to pieces by the Doctor. Let's not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, what do I choose? I'm going to go for the Seeker. I simply think because I mean Paul Seed is brilliant, and he's and I think he's one of the best versions of. You know, powerful men who go mad in Doctor Who, uh, often which were played by Prentice Hancock, actually. Um, uh, and he does it so well. Uh, and, and the backstory and the characterization all that are great. But I think The Seeker is so different. And as I say, I'm not, I'm uncomfortable with how she sits in the Doctor Who universe because she represents prophecy that actually comes off. But I think there's, I, but I and I think she's really well. She again is an, an element of the design, so there's a bit of crossover there. But I, yeah, I think I'm going to say the seeker. Uh, so those are my two things. Um, but with honourable mentions to all of the other stuff, I didn't even mention Ian Cuthbertson, who's brilliant. Garen is a fantastic character. He's he's the best rogue I think that's ever been in Doctor Who and on stuff. Those two are great. I'm, again, sometimes you could be so good you're taken for granted, and that's the richness we have 
with Doctor Who and with the character actors we we have that populate Doctor Who. Um, but no, I'm going to commit to Reboss and to the Seeker. What has Dan chosen? So my favourite thing in episode four, I am going to cheat very slightly because I really want to talk about the performances in this whole serial. But I want to really think about uh, one of the things I really love in episode four is Paul Seed's performance as the Graf Finder K. Um, and I want to kind of talk about that because uh, I, I think he's, it's it's a big performance. It's, you could easily think it's very over the top uh, and slightly hammy, um, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually perfectly judged. The story as a whole has got a wonderfully um, theatrical quality to it. Um, the, the costumes feel very theatrical somehow to me. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of real richness in, in the dialogue, which I think allows the characters to all be, all of them, a little bit larger than life. What I think is, is great about what Paul Seed does actually right the way through is you get a really strong sense of this man who clearly is uh, a, a thug and a psychopath, but also he manages to show you uh, a guy who is just pathetic and desperate and humiliated by the fact that his half-brother has stolen the throne from him and he's seething with resentment and frustration and uh and and burning shame and you get that the whole way through and it pushes that his sense of desperation more and more and more until we get to this point get to the the wonderful point when he does kind of lose it and he is marching uh, into the catacombs unknowingly with bombs strapped to him um imagining himself to be back in the alliance wars and i think he does that absolutely wonderfully um uh, but of course I can't just talk about his performance uh, because actually um, Ian Cuthbertson's Garon is just, I mean, it's just wonderful. Again, it's a huge performance. It's big and barnstorming. But of course, that's also because the part that Garon is playing when he he says to he, he gives the impression that he's um he's this real estate salesman is this rather grand, rather posh, a little bit pompous, used to dealing with high and important persons and therefore having a, a certain kind of um, uh, aristocratic air. You know, that wonderful bit uh, where they, I think he's just, they've just signed the million opex off uh, to, to the guard uh, to, in, in the strong room and um, the uh, dear old Prentice Hancock has the line about you know we have to we have to lock up the 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 room for the end of the day, and uh, Garen has that that line oh most interesting ceremony would you care to watch, and it's it's a very sort of he has that that wonderful air that does is there to convince um, these really dangerous people that he's a uh, uh, that he's a um, he is the person that he thinks he is. And then, of course, we get Ian Cuthbertson's Hackney Wick 
accent, which is also very funny. Uh, and then, of course, he even does a bit of Somerset in the first one as well. So he's kind of great. Nigel Plaskett is a wonderful foil for him. Robert Keegan is a wonderful foil for Paul Seed. Robert Keegan as Sholak. They've got a wonderful, interesting, slightly homoerotic uh, bond between them. And then, of course, the other great double act in this uh, this episode is is Tom Baker and Mary Tam as the Doctor Romana. And they're fantastic, aren't they? I mean, it's really interesting. For the first time, the Doctor is really resituated by his companion. So suddenly he's not the smartest person in the universe. Romana is actually smarter than he is. And he becomes petulant and sulky, but then also sort of demonstrates he kind of has a sort of, he has kind of practical, intuitive, common sense knowledge that's, that's very resourceful and gets them out of the situation. But they're very, very funny the whole way through. And Mary Tam's wonderful kind of, cool ice maiden thing is a brilliant foil for this sort of fizzing wiry you know whatever he was six foot five energy that tom baker exudes so i've got to say i think the performances are the thing that brings the whole series in episode four uh, up to a wonderful crescendo so that's my episode four thing isn't that interesting uh, that he touched upon? We came to sort of different conclusions, but by travelling the same path, I got to the to the seeker, uh, who he didn't mention actually, and and uh, he got to Paul Seed, who I mentioned a lot, but via the homoeroticism of uh, of uh, Shellac and the Graf, uh, the the brilliance of Ian Cuthbertson. I didn't touch upon the Doctor and Romana in the way that Dan did actually, but that. Is a, is a very key point and about the sudden change in the Doctor's status. Uh, uh, but I, I loved how our thoughts sort of intersected on that, but then he went off into slightly different directions, which I agreed with all of and were very illuminating. I do love, I mean, I'm not having a conversation with him, but talking about Doctor Who with people, you know, who I, 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 I am simpatico with, um, but who nonetheless, you know, then will conjure up something that, you know, my my, my thought process is perhaps touched upon, but, you know, take it off in a different direction. Uh, and I, I was somebody that didn't have anybody really to talk to about Doctor Who for many, 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 many years. It was the love that dared not speak its name. Uh, uh, and I, I'm so grateful for that. And I think that's what's hopefully what's interesting about this is that it's not just me gassing on, which I think, you know, you unfortunately is 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 in the is part of the deal but the the what what i've loved about doing this so far is the different perspectives of the people that have kindly contributed have have opened my eyes uh and i hope and i hope yours and i and i also hope of have, have have you know in, introduced you to some people whose work uh you'll go off to seek out after you've watched the story they've been talking about because because dan stuff is great by the way um, right, so what's his... So that's annoying, because I nearly said, I think I could have... If I... I think, because he led with Paul Seed, I think if I'd chosen Paul Seed in that, that, that death moment for the graph, I think I might have taken that as, as being along similar lines to, to Dan, which would have made me uh, even... Steve, uh, oh, no, which would have made me win, because it was 2-1 to me coming into this because we'd both chosen the same thing for episodes two and three. But but bec because he didn't mention The Seeker either, even though I talked a lot about the performances in getting to The Seeker, 
I think I cannot claim that one. So we are two all. This is still the best I've ever done. <laughs> Going into the bonus thing. So if he chooses the snowy, uh, catacomby, costumey, policy, war and PC thing of Reboss, I, I will actually win for the first time. And I've done quite a few of these. I'm going to juggle around with the, the release order. Um, often on a whim, because I have power and I'm going to blooming well yield it. But, uh, and I've enjoyed this one. Uh, and uh, and, and it's a, I'm recording on a winter's night. And I think it might be worth listening to on a winter's night. Anyway, uh, even though I've got quite a few in the, in the can, actually. Uh, I've, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. I hope you are. Um, what's Dan's final thing? And then the thing I love about the whole story is Robert Holmes. I've got to say Robert Holmes, haven't I? I mean, he is, I still think he's the the greatest writer who ever wrote for Doctor Who. Old series, new series. Uh, he's the person who absolutely got it. Uh, and just, I mean, again, it's that creating the worlds. But, you know, he's also, you know, he manages to find so many tones in there. It's It's one of the funniest stories. It's, I mean, it's, Possibly only City of Death is a funnier script in the classic series than this one. Uh, it's full of brilliantly funny stories, moments, situations, kind of story beats and so on. The things I was saying before about all the performances, you know, the double acts. We all know Robert Holmes is great at double acts, but the double acts absolutely structure the whole thing. He's the person who's created the, the world of the play. Uh, so, you know, he's finding incredible space in this really, for the classic serial, a really tightly packed story for the these little hints of a, a hinterland to the world outside that make it a very kind of believable world that we're in. And yeah, it's a tightly packed story. There are tons, there's tons of plot. Um, to the point, I have to say, I think when I, I watched this, you know, when it went out, I would have been, what, nine or ten or something like that. Um, uh, I don't think, I think it took me listening to it because I probably, I think I recorded it on cassette uh, at that age. It probably took listening to it kind of five or six times before I really understood the story. But nonetheless, it's a brilliant story. It's such a funny, clever idea to have a con artist who pretends to be a real estate salesman who pretends to sell planets. You know, it's a it's a version of that, you know, the the con artist who who sold London Bridge to a tourist. You know, it's that kind of idea. Uh, and uh, there's always a bit of satire in Robert Holmes. You know, a couple of stories earlier, he's mocking the tax system in the Sunmakers. And here he is use, looking at kind of estate agents and using some of the some of the horror that we have of estate agents uh, uh, and and putting that in in Garon. And um, and so that becomes really funny and very pointed. It's uh, it's it's beautifully told as well. Uh, the the cliffhangers. Uh, maybe not so much the first one, but the second and, and third one uh, are real proper story beat cliffhangers. They properly move things along. They're not just, you know, 30 seconds peril for the sake of a cliffhanger. So uh, it's a really, really 
great script. For me, this is the single greatest script that was ever written for, for Doctor Who from 1963 to the present. Well, praise indeed. Praise indeed. Uh, there was no way I was going to choose Robert Holmes, probably because, again, I, we sort of take him for granted. Uh, and it's funny how I'll, you know, I'll pick out an actor, but I might not pick out a, a script writer because I'll pick out individual bits of the script. I don't know. But the rules for this is you choose a thing. And for some people, it's going to be a childhood reminiscence. For some people, it's going to be a, a feeling that they get. I mean, Simon Gurrier, when we did Evil of the Daleks, was for something that... The fact that we we had no idea what's going on, and yeah, choosing the the writer um, and the script as a whole uh, is almost hiding in plain sight, uh, a bit like the Jethric. Um, but I was never going to choose that. I, I see, I'm doomed to fail in this project, but I don't mind that. I think if I set myself up to fail, I won't be disappointed. I think I've already said that even, uh, repeating myself even this early into the process. But um, it's how I've spent my life is uh, expecting not to succeed. So if it happens one day, and I was close with this, I was close. I'm going to take three, two to me. I'm going to take the fact that Dan and I, and we had so many crossovers, even in the bits that we, you know, we ended up not tallying with uh, exactly. I've really enjoyed, um, even though I was talking all the way through it, part of me wants to now shut up and watch it again without without being interrupted by me. But I've got more stories to watch and I've got more things to do. But maybe if you do, if you if you didn't watch it uh, first time round without me gassing on, uh, there's so much in that story. I cannot wait to watch that story again just for entertainment's sake. I'm invigorated by Dan's perspectives on it and his expert eye. And he, as I say, he's a very, very skilled writer himself. Um, but he gave us the perspectives of, yeah, he's a writer, but a, a fan as well. And, a, and, a, and uh, that was a real celebration of a great bit of Doctor Who. This is the stuff. This is what I imagined. This is what I hope. No, I don't know what I imagined, but I I found this a very rewarding uh segment of this podcast which will be a podcast i'm sure of ups and downs uh, uh, uh so i hope you're as enthused as i have been i hope uh, you know and i hope you um uh, avail yourself of some of dan's work we've been actually i communicated with him after i'd done episodes one to three just to say how much i'd enjoyed his contribution um and the effort that he'd gone to he filmed in the tardis um and we got talking about stuff and he's uh, and he just said to say that he's got uh, a radio play on uh, on January the 4th, 2021 at 2pm on BBC Radio 4 and it will be on BBC Sounds for the follow for, for a month uh, and it's called uh, it's called You and Me uh, and it's about the Me Too movement but has a twist because as well as being a very funny and very intelligent man uh, Dan, you know, he's, uh, he's a political writer too, he's got things to say uh, but he's not po-faced about it. He's a very witty man. He talked, you know, he was celebrating Robert Holmes's double acts there. The characters that were in the script of Dead Souls that uh, I did for Radio 4 that, that Dan wrote, which was the first time we met, was full of brilliant characters. So actually there's a bit of Robert Holmes there. I'm not saying he, he in any way uh, uh, lifted anything or, or anything, like that, but, but there, was a, there are, there's, there's clearly 
and and Dan is a you know a fantastic writer in his own right, but there are there are perhaps similarities in uh, 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 the ability to conjure uh, comedy and incident and tell story through character uh, between Robert Holmes and Dan Rebellato. So if if you like Dan like this script, you'll also like his script. So I hope you uh, avail yourself of his work. I'm really flattered that uh, he's given the time to this. Uh, and it's been actually nice for me to then reconnect with him and, and have little chats as we've had about other things. Because Doctor Who, uh, you know, has has a way, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a common language, isn't it, between us. So I hope um, you haven't had to work too hard to translate my nonsense, my barrage of uh, verbal diarrhea. Um, it's been nice talking to you about this brilliant Doctor Who story. Uh, I hope we can do another one soon. I hope you'll join me for another one soon. I loved the Rebus operation uh, to the extent that I actually pronounced its name right more often than I didn't, which surprised me. Um, wrap up warm. It's winter. Uh, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean you can't have a lot of fun, as proved by this brilliant Doctor Who story. Uh, definitely the planet Rebus is a happy time and a happy place uh, and I'll see you at another one of those next time but for now thanks for listening and a very good night to you thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places which was presented by me Toby Haydoke with my special guest Dan Rebellato Sincere thanks to this episode's featured patrons Rob Leonard, Kevin West, Hendrik Korsniejowski, Kazin, and Duncan Harvey. Dan Rebellato's play, You and Me, was on BBC Radio 4 on January the 4th and is therefore available until February the 4th on BBC Sounds. Do check it out. Now, I will be returning to a more sensible schedule. I rushed released the rescue for my birthday and to tie it in with its original broadcast. And I hurried this one out in order to give you time to listen to Dan's play. So don't think of this as a normal work rate, because uh, otherwise I'll keel over. The next happy time and place will be stuck by a lake with a missile convoy, because, oh yes, it's less of a commentary, more of a battlefield. Next time. Boom. Don't forget to subscribe and to please rate this five stars wherever you happen to pick up your podcasts. Leave a nice review too if you can find the time to do so. And uh, yeah, subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. And you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby because these podcasts don't make themselves and there are extra goodies there as well and advanced releases. Or you can make a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby But mostly, thanks for listening, and I hope you're very well, and I hope you're very happy.